Hello everyone. My name is Andrew and welcome back to the McGill International Review. Greg Sargent is a columnist for the Washington Post. I had him on the podcast last year to discuss what strategies the Democratic Party could use in the lead up to the 2022 midterms. Today, I've brought him back onto the podcast for, well, first, an admittedly belated post-mortem on the U.S.'s midterm election results last year, but also a discussion about the new status quo of the U.S., what issue spaces Democrats can highlight in their messaging nowadays, whether or not there might be some potential for bipartisan legislation on immigration, and more. Hope you enjoy. Greg Sargent, thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Um, I'm going to start out by asking a question, a little bit of a belated question about interpreting the results of our midterm results last November. What do you think was the primary motivation for Democrat, Democrats to do better than certain people expected? In other words, why, why do I think they did better than, than people expected? Yes. Uh, well, I, you know, I think a bunch of us, I got some of this wrong as well, so I'm certainly not exempt from it, but I think a lot of people, me included, really underestimated how important a, a factor, the kind of MAGA extremism of the Republican candidates would be. I don't think many people expected Carrie Lake to pay a major price for saying things like, you know, I, I, I'm not going to, I won't say in advance whether I'll accept a loss. I don't think people uh, expected her to pay a price for essentially threatening to throw journalists in, in re-education gulags once she was governor. I don't know if you remember that moment, but it was a good one. Um, it was quite a moment, yeah. Yeah, and I think everyone understood that Mastriano was a kind of different sort of animal, right? He was Doug Mastriano, the Pennsylvania governor, gubernatorial candidate on the Republican side. Uh, I think everyone understood that he was not going to be able to do well. And then, of course, he did even worse than uh, people expected. But I don't think many people thought that the combination of uh, the hostility to democracy and the uh, abortion rights issue becoming so prominent would weigh as much, have carry as much weight as inflation and gas prices and structural um, disadvantages faced by the party in power uh, during the first midterm uh, after a presidential win. Um, I don't think that anyone could have predicted. Well, I, you know, there were people who did predict it. Simon Rosenberg, uh, the Democratic strategist, got a lot of this right. He, um, he said steadily, I interviewed him actually over the summer, um, months before the election, and he said, I think we have a shot. I think that um, people are going to vote against MAGA. That's what he said. And, and not a lot of people expected that, but that's missing that is the, I think that's the big miss. All right. Okay. Yeah. So uh, you made a guest appearance on an episode of Positively Dreadful, where you had a quote about the midterm ah. performance that I thought was kind of interesting. So I'm going to quote it right now. The fabled middle of the road swing voter, which are supposedly won over by kitchen table issues, were actually won over by abortion rights and democracy. So I do think that like some of the people you were referring to, I do think they were like accurately um, or at least somewhat more accurately stating the way that abortion played a large role in the issue. But regardless, I do think that you were right that democracy played 
a larger role than people could have expected. But the part at the interest at the beginning when you said the fabled middle of the rings, the the fabled middle of the road swing voter. So what do you think of the idea that um, like the results of the midterms, even if they discredit certain arguments that um, those people have made, it still partially vindicates the argument made by people like Maddie Glazies or David Shore that swing voters matter more than voter turnout does. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's not really accurate to say that they own that argument. Um, I, I think most Democrats and people who do this professionally and a lot of pundits, uh, a lot of liberal pundits, do not make this distinction that that idea hangs on. In other words, I don't think that it really is true that a lot of people are arguing that base turnout alone is the thing that matters. There may be some, a few people arguing it, but it's certainly not a as widespread an argument as as the, this kind of punditry seems to to suggest, right? Um, I think from my conversations with Democrats, they perpetually say we need persuasion and turnout, persuasion and turnout, persuasion and turnout. And there was a tremendous f- emphasis on persuasion in this election. Huge amounts of money were pumped into ads, both on the economy and on abortion, not just to ge- and the abortion ads and the uh, J- January 6th committee highlighting the attacks on democracy. Those weren't about turning out the base alone. They were absolutely about uh, persuading swing voters. You know, think about uh, projects like the Republican Accountability Project by run by some of those never Trumpers. They were all about using the democracy issue to move the middle, right? Um, and I just, I've never really understood the hyping of the idea that there's this huge uh, contingent out there that seems to say that only base turnout matters. Do you think that maybe that might be a myth that's driven by in a sort of outsized um, rhetoric with regards to voter turnout from uh, certain media outlets like pub- like public radio? I mean, I guess it's possible. I, I haven't tracked it all that closely. All I know is that I, I talk to a lot of Democrats and Democratic strategists, and I read a fair amount of liberal punditry, and I I almost never see it stated that base turnout is the, is the only thing that matters. Everyone yeah. talks constantly about the need for persuasion. It's almost comical. If anything, Democratic strategists uh, talk more about the need for, for shifting the middle than than they do about uh, base turnout. Well, if they so do, I don't see I don't see where the vindication is, honestly, because, um, you know, everybody said all throughout that what was going to matter was whether inflation and gas prices and the economy pushed swing voters into the Republican camp. That was like everyone said the 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 turnout the 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 midterm results will turn at, turn on whether that happens or whether Democrats can use the abortion issue and the attacks on democracy to shift the middle back towards them. Okay. Um, so you think that the crux of this argument has nothing to do with like turnout versus uh, swing voters. It's more about what issues were driving them. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that if you're talking about the popularists, um, I, my, I, I think they, they have tried to say, it, the pot, I, I should be fair in saying that there's a sort of range of quote unquote popularist arguments. Some of them actually do agree that, that abortion rights 
was a key issue, was and can be going forward a key issue for moving the middle. Um, that we all agree on that, I think. So there's there's not that much disagreement here. I just, I mean, my sense is that those people are arguing with a smaller contingent than really merits that much attention, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I guess one of the things I agree with you the most on is like when it comes to these different factions of the, of the left, I don't really think there's as much disagreement between those factions as sometimes people make it out to be. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, so what do you think of the idea that like when it comes to abortion, obviously Dobbs was notoriously unpopular, but part of the reason why that played a role in the midterms is because Republicans sort of went too far and didn't play their cards right. Like, for example, um, in something like Florida, which was a blue state back in, say, 2012, it like it lost um, and DeSantis won in a landslide. And what do you think of the reason that part of the reason why is because when it came to abortion, they did something political pop politically popular in terms of a 15 week ban. And if more Republicans did that sort of thing, then they would have won more. I mean, it seems to me that the DeSantis win is, is definitely something Democrats have to think very long and hard about. Part of it is that Florida really is drifting red and, and maybe kind of headed in the direction of Ohio, right? Um, and just isn't a swing state. I mean, it's true. I mean, I think a lot of people's thinking is is influenced by the fact that Obama won it twice, right? And yeah, so but it it, sort of like spoke. you could argue that it was like a lost, like a swing state that was easily lost back in even 2016. Well, yes, I think you could argue that. That's right. And and people remember the two Obama victories there and think, well, this is still kind of a swing state. But those those victories, those Obama wins, were very very tight. At least the 2012 one certainly was. 2008 is really kind of a, you can't really learn much from it because it, it, there were so many factors. When yeah, like this was later. in the aftermath of like the 2008 recession. Um, so Yeah, I mean, it was the biggest financial crisis in maybe 70 years, right? You had a, years and years of an unpopular war. Uh, and you had a very deeply unpopular president who had all kinds of negatives, including Katrina and, and and the effort to privatize social security. And then on top of all that, you had the fact that Republicans had held the White House for two terms. So it's very hard to, to extrapolate much from what happened in 2008. But 2012 was, you know, obviously Obama had the advantages of incumbency there, but he, his victory over Romney in Florida, if I remember correctly, it was around a point, wasn't it? Yeah, it was incredibly close. And I think 2016 was also incredibly close. Yes, right, right. And and, and so Ohio is, I, I think Florida maybe is starting to look a little bit like Ohio in that sense. There's, there's just a new map taking shape. I mean, in 2020 uh, and then 2022, the victories in the Southwest in Arizona and New Mexico, um, those I think, and Georgia, uh, those to me are very big harbingers of, of where the democratic uh, electoral map is going to be. Yeah. All right. So going to hard pivot onto another topic. Um, yeah. So there was a piece that you wrote that I thought was interesting. So I'm going to give one quote here. Republicans have long insisted that a GOP controlled house would not vote on anything related to immigration until the border was quote unquote secure. This vow embodies a larger MAGA-approved message. 
A GOP House will wield absolute control over the immigration debate. The border will be secured on the Republican terms only, with no compromises on quote-unquote amnesty. The party's over, open borders, Democrats. Um, so, like, you use this as part of a broader point about how some of the GOP rhetoric on this issue is not working that well for them. So could you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, I'm glad you brought that up, because to me, that's a really, really important development um, for a whole bunch of reasons and still not getting the attention I think it deserves. That's partly because I think not a lot of liberals are that focused on the immigration issue, unfortunately, I think. Um, but yeah, so so they ran hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in ads about the border, about, you know, the dark hordes streaming into the country. Um, and, and they lost in, in really some, they lost some tough races that were all about this issue. I mean, Blake Masters uh, was like the uh, quintessential lab, conf lab fabricated MAGA candidate. He was going to be, you know, the great uh, restrictionist hope of the GOP. He was running in Arizona, a border state, right? Um, and same with Adam Laxalt, who was running against Catherine Cortez Masto in, in, in New Mexico, and really an extremist on immigration. And they lost those races. Um, and they, they badly underperformed in the House. By the way, this is like the third cycle in a row that the immigration message as a campaign strategy has really not done much for Republicans in national elections. Um, and so now you have a situation where, because their majority is so narrow in the House, all of a sudden they can't even pass a border security bill. And this was like their central agenda item, or at least one of them. And it, to me, it's a really remarkable tell that already you've got a, a chunk of, I, I don't want to use the word moderate, but less extreme Republicans who won't vote for that, who are saying we can't vote just on border security. There has to be a broader deal. We need to reform the immigration system. Uh, we need to create legal pathways for workers, uh, farm workers especially. A big republic. So a lot of Republicans want that. And so what I take from this is that this idea that they could just seize control of the immigration debate if they won the House has just gone completely belly up. It sort of shows how how extreme the Republican agenda on immigration really is if they can't even get a majority in the House, if they can't even, you know, get enough Republicans to pass it when they control the House. I think they'll get there eventually, but but it's certainly a big tell that it's so hard for them. Yeah. And like you mentioned that sort of liberals are sort of refraining from talking that much about immigration for reasons that I'm kind of sympathetic to. It's the sort of populist argument that the right has control over the immigration debate. Uh, like one of the core tenets of where we are now is the idea that Trump won in 2016 largely because of his immigration rhetoric. Um, and I believe the last time uh, an attempt at bipartisan immigration reform was back in like 2013 when it unfortunately failed because it didn't get pat like passed up. Um, so do you think there is any space for um, Democrats to like shift the median voters views on immigration now? Well, it's tough because there's a Democrat in the White House and public opinion is often a reaction on this issue to who's in the White House. So under Trump, you had uh, the public being much more uh, open to legal immigration and much more pro-immigrant pro than they had been previously. 
And now under uh, Biden, under President Biden, it's gone the other way. And you see some metrics showing that people are are a little more hostile towards towards immigration. Um, but I do think that there is a sweet spot in the center somewhere that Democrats can really try to rally public opinion behind. And by the way, I actually think a fair number of House Republicans would support it if it were allowed to vote. What at the end of the uh, last at the end of the last um, Congress, you had uh, Kirsten Sinema, the senator senator from Arizona, and Tom Tillis, the senator from North Carolina, negotiating a deal that would have dramatically reformed the asylum system by pumping a lot of resources into it and expediting removal of people who don't qualify, um, plus a lot of border security and a raise for the border patrol. And I think that plus the legalization of the dreamers, the farm workers, the TPS people, maybe more, something like that really is a potential sweet spot that I think you could get a bipartisan majority for in Congress if it were allowed to get a vote. I think you mentioned at some point that a bomb, that immigration reform failed in 2013. I think it's worth remembering what happened because it really illuminates this moment. Um, remember, Obama was able to get a, a very comprehensive immigration reform bill passed through the Senate by a large bipartisan majority. I think at least a dozen Republican senators voted for that. Yeah, I think it was and like every, sixty. It was like sixty-eight thirty-two, to my recollection. Yeah, it was an extraordinary thing. And and you know what happened after that is that uh, Obama was practically pleading with the Speaker John Boehner at the time to allow a vote on it in the House, and he refused, and in the end never allowed it. And everybody understood perfectly well why. It was because if it had gotten a vote, the House would have passed it. And I think right now the dynamic is, is, is pretty similar in the sense that if you got something that reformed asylum, that pumped a lot of resources into processing asylum seekers, that added some border security uh, stuff for Republicans, that, uh, that legalized the dreamers, that, which some Republicans seem to want to do, legalized farm workers, which some Republicans definitely want to do, that could pass the House with a bipartisan majority. I just don't think Speaker McCarthy would ever allow a vote on it, though. But I do think, to answer your question, Democrats really could try to rally um, public opinion behind a broad compromise like that. And one last point, I've, I've written this before, but I think they should, Democrats should elevate their uh, young, dynamic voices in the Southwest on this issue. Um, people, people like uh, Mark Kelly and, and, well, Kirsten Sinema is an independent now, but Catherine Cortez Masto, um, these types of, of Democrats who represent Southwestern states and have beaten uh, highly restrictionist MAGA Republicans in, in close contests. I would be elevating those voices on this issue as much as possible. Let's say that um, the immigration reform bill, you, we managed to get a good bipartisan major majority in the Senate, but the House doesn't vote on it. What next? So I think maybe you could try a discharge petition under which um, if if 20 if if a majority of the House is willing to sign on, you get a vote. I'm simplifying, but the gist is for your listeners under a discharge petition. If you can get a majority of the House to support something and support having a vote on it, theoretically, under the rules, you can actually have a vote even if the leadership doesn't want it. 
Now, I don't really think there's much of a chance that you would get six or seven or eight House Republicans to sign on to something like that, but it might be worth trying. I do think the Senate, that Democrats and, and pro-immigration Republicans, and there are some in the Senate, they should really try to do some sort of broad deal like this and, and send it over to the House, and or at least try and challenge the House to, to pass it and see what, what happens then. There are Republicans in the House who are not happy with having to vote only on border security and very much want to be able to vote for something that legalizes a bunch of people, especially like farm workers, right, and dreamers, and want to be able to vote for something that fixes the asylum system in, in a positive way, not a way that just restores Trump's draconian policies. There are Republicans who want to cast that vote. Yeah, and there, just as there were Republicans that were willing to cast that vote in 2013. That's right, and they couldn't. And, and I actually, I, I had a really interesting conversation with a Republican pollster at the time, and I'd never forgotten this because it, it's so illuminating. This is a guy who, who worked for Marco Rubio back when Marco Rubio was sort of seen as, as you know, a real, a, a real young, uh, a real young up and comer in the party who had, who had real presidential uh, possibilities, right? And by the way, let's remember that at the time, Marco Rubio was one of the people out front trying to sell the right wing base, the Republican base on immigration reform. Um, it was a very different time back then, the pre-Trump years, right? But uh, this Republican pollster said to me, it's true that the Republican base sees legalization of, of undocumented immigrants as amnesty, but if you take them through the argument and if you tell them that these people are not on the books um, and that if they were uh, legalized or given a path to legalization, they would be on the books, they would be paying taxes, uh, the authorities would know who they were, um, then all of a sudden, uh, even right-wing Republican rank-and-file voters see the wisdom in it. The only problem is getting past the, 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 the real obstacle, which is that the right-wing media has this real lock on, on the discourse among, among Republican voters um, and makes it hard to sort of penetrate with these arguments. And Obviously, the Republican leadership is 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 really terrified of of crossing angry conservatives as well. So, until that can be dealt with, it's tough to get there. Yeah, it's like um a problem of like talk radio and like conservative news hosts that sort of use demagoguery with regards to this issue, and it makes it yeah. hard to actually uh, take control of this issue space. Um, it is, and and it's a shame because. And by the way, I think the type of compromise I was talking about earlier would lose a fair amount of Democrats on the left, right? You would get a lot of, a fair amount of progressives voting against it, I think maybe wrongly, but that's what would happen. So you really would need some, some sort of coalition in the middle to get this done. Um, and I think they should try. Yeah. Because obviously the status quo is just a, you know, a rolling disaster. Yeah. And like, it is worthwhile to try but I guess at the same time, we should be wary of whether or not like voters would be amiable to this. Well, I think I think something like this would would get very broad public support. I mean, we're talking about fixing the asylum system, speeding it up, um, making it making it easier for for uh, asylum seekers to get their hearings, which would 
do away with the long waits for their hearings and, and do away with judicial backlogs and stuff like that. We're talking about um, legalizing people who are now in the shadows and can't contribute to their full potential to, to the United States. I can't imagine that something like that wouldn't have broad public support. Um, I guess like everything you said is like, I agree that it's very good for those people. And I think that if you do, if you were to take some random person and then walk them through the logic, you it, it, would, it would be very good to convince them. It's just a matter of whether or not you can actually break through some of the like the demagoguery in terms of rhetoric and like the way that people are like reflexively inclined to view this issue before you walk through the specifics with them. Um, it's really hard. It's really, really hard. Um, we saw this over and over. I mean, even Trump, kind of wanted to do something when he was president on the dreamers and then the second the right-wing machine kicked into gear it just fell apart do you remember when uh, chuck schumer offered uh, president trump something like 25 billion dollars for his wall in exchange for legalizing the dreamers i think that was the number um, yeah. and as far as i could as far as anyone could tell trump was sorely tempted by it i think he would actually like to to, to cut a deal in which he would have liked to cut a deal, at least the, maybe uh, it, Trump's Trump's uh, views obviously shift from second to second based on what he's seeing and hearing on Fox News at any given moment and who's talking to him. But there were times where he seemed to actually want to legalize the dreamers um, in exchange for, for wall money. Um, but as soon as Stephen Miller's restrictionist propaganda machine kicked in, it was over. Yeah. So I guess it's always um, it's like every we should do everything we can, but it's worth understanding whether or not the the propaganda machine will intervene. Um, but anyway, there was another guest appearance that you made on a podcast called On Democracy, um, where you made a quote that I thought was interesting. So I'm going to quote it right now. Democrats have to try to find a way to make the right wing degenerate culture warring into a real liability. So when it comes to the right-wing culture war, which aspects of the culture war do you think benefit Democrats and which aspects do you think benefit Republicans electorally? Well, it's a complicated question and it really kind of varies from place to place. Again, Ron DeSantis is, is a real, it's a real problem that Democrats have to deal with. I mean, he is one of the most virulent culture warriors in the country, right? Um, he's actually described Florida as the place where woke goes to die and nobody is doing this stuff more aggressively than he is. And he won smashing reelection. I think there's that's something we all have to deal with. Uh, Youngkin won in Virginia on some of this stuff. Glenn Youngkin won the gubernatorial race in, in Virginia on some of this stuff. Although I think that race was actually a little bit more about um, school closures than it was about wokeness in schools, quote unquote. Yeah, I, th I think um, I think school closures was a big deal in 2021. And then by 2022, everyone had moved on. Right. And, and I think that actually led some of the some of the culture warriors in the in the anti-woke camp to get a little bit hubristic about the power of their message. Right. Um, and you had a fair number of these Republicans running on it in 2022 and a lot of them lost. Uh, and that was after the pandemic had faded and school closures had faded as an issue, which suggests that school closures were really shaping a lot of that stuff in 2021, right? Um, yeah. But yeah, I think that Democrats can do kind of what Democrats in Michigan are doing and what J.B. Pritzker, the governor of Illinois, is doing. 
and sort of articulate a broad and inclusive and, and non-censoring uh, vision for the future of American education and contrast it against Ron DeSantis. Um, I think Democrats at least have to play around with ways to, to make their case for a liberal cultural agenda as, as, an, as an alternative to this kind of reactionary culture war stuff. Uh, as for what's a liability on the Republican side, I think some of these um, images of libraries being emptied out of books or covered up, um, that I think that's really tough for the, for the right. I, I think that's, that's going to alienate the center of the country in a big way. Um, they seem to be convinced that they can turn educators into the enemy, uh, create, a, create this impression that educators are out to indoctrinate children. I just, I don't see it. I, yeah. I think that in the long run, if Democrats do this properly, they can win that argument. Yeah, I think I actually agree with you because once again, it all comes down to messaging. And in the case of Ron DeSantis, I think it's worth mentioning that I think free speech is one of the issues where like the majority of Americans strongly support free speech. And if Democrats can like message this in terms of like DeSantis is cracking down on free speech, that would definitely yeah. benefit Democrats. Um, I think that's exactly right. That's that's exactly it. Um, that And that is what's happening, right? This is real. They really are going to extraordinary lengths to restrict what can be taught in classrooms. Now, we have to be honest with ourselves. The right is very good at messaging some of this stuff, too, when they say all we want to do is just have our kids not be subjected to pornography, right? Um, that's a tough message to, to counter in, in purely political terms. But as you say, I think if, if Democrats can reframe the issue as one over uh, open dialogue um, and 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 make the case strongly that that being exposed to ideas that that might be controversial actually is better for kids. That it it sharpens their thinking uh, and their and their arguing skills and makes them more competitive for for higher education. If 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 Democrats can reframe the conversation that way, I think they they win the argument. Yeah, and I think that this this is an issue space that might be a bit easier for Democrats to deal with than the whole immigration debacle. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I know that, I know that people today really think that the immigration debate can't be won. I, I, I just, I don't see it. I, I, I think people forget that actually Biden took that on pretty directly. One of his highest profile moments in the 2020 campaign during the debates was when he whacked Trump for, um, for uh, kids in cages, and he ran it, and Biden ran ads in the swing states on, on in the swing states on this topic. I, I don't really understand why everybody has decided that um, that this argument can't be won. We've seen Democrats win it. Yeah, I think there. I think a lot of it is just like still. I think rightly focused on the way that Trump won in 2016 because of immigration. But I think you make some good points about how it's possible to change the tide of the narrative in this point. Um, yeah. yeah, and I don't even, I'm not even persuaded that's why Trump won, but I understand why, I, 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 I understand why people think that. Yeah, um, so moving on, do you, want, uh, do you want to talk about the CHIPS Act? Yes, but I've got to get going to, to in a few. All right. Um, so I guess uh, my final question would be, um, could you elaborate on the way that the CHIPS Act 
can provide jobs into and opportunities to red states and working class districts and how that might mend some of the divisions in our country? Uh, well, can I broaden that out a little bit and talk about the Inflation Reduction Act as well? Yeah, sure. Um, so what, you, what you're pointing to is I think, I really hope this is, is true. Um, it seems to me that the enormous amounts of investment that are going into creating green and tech manufacturing jobs, much of which is going to red states and districts, at least give Democrats a chance of shifting the paradigm a little bit on understanding both government spending and uh, the need to shift to a to a, uh, to a, a to the need to decarbonize the economy. If if this can become if those goals can become in in voters' heads, the manufacturing jobs of the future. In other words, if if people start to associate the green transition with the the economy and manufacturing jobs of the future, then all of a sudden uh, that could have really positive effects on on how the politics of climate change and um, and, and and sort of the cultural overtones of, of those politics are understood, don't you think? Um, you know, you see companies like Ford running ads for their electric trucks, which essentially cast the manufacturing of those trucks as, as Americana, right? I don't know if you've seen these ads, but they're pretty remarkable. They show, you know, factory workers building these things um, with good high paying tech jobs. And, and by the way, a lot of the tech jobs created by um, the CHIPS Act, or at least a lot of the tech jobs that are in the CHIPS um, that, that, are, that, are, that are in uh, CHIPS manufacturing places will be both good jobs and will be very accessible for people without college educations. Uh, there was a new study that showed that just recently. And so it seems to me that if, if that really can kind of take off, if, if, if people can understand these, the green revolution as actually um, as something that they have a major economic stake in, then it could be transformative. I don't want to get too optimistic, but those Ford ads are really something. I mean, they, they actually cast the building of these trucks as part of a national project, like a, it's almost like a nationalist message where the building of a, an electric truck is akin to participating in the nationalist project of shifting our economy to, to the green economy of the future. And, and so I'm hopeful that that can really um, shift the paradigm on, on a bunch of different things. All right, Greg Sargent, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to come back onto the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you like the episode, make sure to follow us on Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye.